Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. My name is Werner. This is Jackson. This is Carrie. Great to see you again and to be back uh, together to record uh, this next episode. Uh, today, our conversation is about sin. Yeah, so Werner, um, when we were talking about topics for this uh, season, you said, ooh, I want to talk about sin. I'm like, nobody wants to talk about <laughs> sin. You did not get the memo here, okay? So let's just, people who are going, hey, I want some light on the way to work, you know, or when I was working out, why are we talking about sin here? So why are you so interested, I don't say fixated, so interested in talking about sin for a whole entire episode? Well, Sin is a uh, a topic that is obviously broadly represented in Scripture, and we've been hearing about sin in the evangelical church, uh, you know, f- since I've been a kid. I remember when I uh, uh, asked uh, Christ to be my Savior after watching Billy Graham and, <laughs> on TV as a little boy, and, uh, you know, I wanted my sins to be forgiven and to have the hope of heaven, and... So sin is something that we're familiar with, and yet I think that in our tradition, the way we talk about sin, think about sin, preach about sin, it's generally really simple in comparison to the way the Bible as an overall uh, narrative uh, addresses the subject of sin. So I think There's just a lot more nuance to the subject than we normally uh, give it. Okay. Well, then, just to make sure we're getting our terms right, what what is it that you perceive as being a rather standard explanation, definition of sin that that you either think is wrong, I don't know if that's what you're saying, or I don't think it is, or is that you think is just maybe reductionistic? Okay. Well, I've got a definition here, excuse me, from... uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I really like this definition because it represents uh, something that I think we would most all agree with. Uh, He writes, uh, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is here defined in relation to God and his moral law. Sin includes not only individual acts, such as stealing, lying, and committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes God requires of us. So I think that's a, a, a very adequate definition of sin, and uh, Grudem being a, a leading evangelical theologian, uh, I think this is broadly representative of the conventional uh, understanding or definition of sin, and, uh, and it's, it's not a definition that I disagree with. Okay, so, but yet you are going to disagree something because that's why you want to talk about it. And uh, and and as we know nowadays, when people say conventional something, that's code for I'm going to try to like you know challenge it, right? Okay, so let's start off with giving props to what we like about this definition. Carrie, what do you like about this definition? I think it's you know it it addresses both act and attitude. I'm not fully sure what he means by nature in this definition. But I do think, you know, he talks about is defined in relation to God. 
And he gives, you know, some concrete examples, stealing, lying, committing murder, but also the attitudes that might go with some of the actions. So I think it's comprehensive in, in that sense. Yeah. Failure to conform to moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Yeah, I'm not quite sure about the whole nature. Uh, and I think he may be talking about appealing to, like, sin nature, perhaps, or original sin nature. Maybe that's what he's referring to, according to the, his theology there. But, yeah, I think that's uh, yeah. I think that's fair. Okay. So what what maybe is something that we may not find sufficient or may not like about the definition? Yeah, I think that the the emphasis here is on individual acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that the way we have understood sin in the evangelical tradition is that sin is located in the individual person mm-hmm. and individual persons are responsible to repent of their individual sins or their individual sin nature and and then to uh, give their uh, faith and, and allegiance to Christ. And uh, as a result, their individual sins are forgiven. Um, in, in my opinion, I think that sin is not located exclusively uh, in the individual person, I think that when we look at the Bible, uh, sin uh, is also located in other in other spheres. Um, for example, in in the in the social group or in uh, dark forces who are opposed to the the law of God and act attitude or nature. So. That's where I would I would expand a little bit on the mm. definition. I like that you talk about yeah. expand, um, yeah. not saying like it's either or. Um, one other thing I would I would add in terms of things that I go well, I'm not so sure. Yes, but would be the idea of moral law. I mean, I'm I'm good with that with forty means, you know, the commands of God, you know, so forth. But the, I think it's the emphasis on just the legal imagery right uh, yeah. I would, i'd want to expand on that um uh, people who've listened to me before have ta- heard me say that this describe law as a crime or sin as a crime is good but insufficient mm-hmm. it's just it definitely does not get to the full nature of sin as we see it in scripture so let's just think for example in the new testament where paul talks most about sin romans one to three talks mm-hmm. a lot about sin there how does Romans 1 to 3 compare to this definition that we see in Grudem Systematic Theology? Yeah, for one thing, I think Paul in Romans 1 through 3 primarily treats uh, sin as a dishonoring of God mm-hmm. and as a dishonoring of uh, bodies and the human condition of, of, of how humans are supposed to be made in the image of a glorious God. Uh, there is a little bit of uh, the wrath of God and the law of God in, in Romans chapter 2, but I think Romans 2.23 really kind of sums it up where, what does he say there, Jackson? Those of you who boast in the law dishonor God <laughs> by breaking his law. It's almost as if I've taught this a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. And so, so, and so, you should know the script by now. That I go the main right. verb in the sentence is dishonor, yeah, exactly, and by breaking exactly. the law is a prepositional statement, just elaborating how the dishonoring happens. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, it's not it's not just the con, uh, the failure to conform to the moral law of God; it's a failure 
to give honor to the person of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which puts the relationship back into this definition of sin, which I think is something that's what's missing as well. Yeah, because we think of sins in terms of lists, in terms of lines, right. crossing a line. And you're right, this whole, like, I have done something against this person, right. this being. Um, go ahead. What, one of the, I did have a question, and then we can kind of move on to this. Is, go ahead. Let me just sure. throw in one thing. Okay. If we say that in the Ten Commandments, what is the first commandment? Is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the greatest commandment. It's not in the Ten Commandments. Oh, okay. So yeah, what is... The, summarize, Jesus summarizes the greatest commandment. Okay, okay. But the first of you the Ten no other, Commandments... You shall have no other gods. Mm-hmm. You shall have no other gods before me. And so that is about relationship yeah. with the personal right, God. So right. one could say that uh, the failure to conform to the moral law of God includes mm. honoring God the person. Mm. You know, it's... it's mm. it, So I think that's... A, it's just... I just want to be fair to... Yeah. Dr. Grudem and his definition here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's is that's fair. The one of the things as I was looking through here that I began to kind of think through is that in these as we're kind of defining sin and we're parsing out words and we're defining words and terms is that is this the way the an, an ancient like an Israelite or an ancient people in the first second century are these questions that they would have been asking or are these questions maybe post enlightenment that we become more kind of scientific in our understanding of scripture and here's the formula this is how you obey god you a plus b equals c um and and so w- would these be issues that the maybe original readers or the Israelites would have been wrestling through as a people. You know, we were talking before we pushed record and I'm not sure if this is the same question you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. If it yeah. is, I yeah. heard, if it is, I heard this differently this okay. time. And I think this is important is that, that you don't see, for example, in, in the Pentateuch, the first few books of the Bible and in a lot of the places, a massive list of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do right. this, don't do this. What do you see more though? That, that's there in part. What you see more is this constant emphasis on idolatry and then, by contrast, allegiance to the Lord. Mm. Everything yeah. is yeah. actually about that. You have people who sin, not cut off. Uh, but what who is cut off are those people who commit idolatry and don't give allegiance to the Lord. Right. And it's But we tend to go the exact opposite where we just think of this whole list of sins where people like John Walton and others have talked about how the law is really more like wisdom literature and you have this like – these examples of sin and examples of disloyalty. And then you're supposed to use your wisdom to go extrapolate. Uh, this right. is what it means to honor and dishonor the Lord. Right. Yeah. So, so no, I don't think they would think of it like we do now in terms of a bunch of lists. Right. They would see it as what does it take to honor the Lord and what is dishonoring and, and disallegiant and disloyal, I guess right. would be the word, uh, to the Lord. Right. Uh, I think another thing that we see in the Old Testament is that this concept of uh, the brokenness of humanity, mm. it goes beyond just do's and don'ts. For right. example, in, Le- in Leviticus 4 and 5, you have uh, examples of, let's say you're, you're chopping wood and the head of the axe uh, flies off the handle right. and hits someone in the head and the person dies, Right. Well, we can say that should not have happened. Right. Right. This was not God's purpose and plan, you know, that this kind of death should have happened. And yet 
that's part of living in a broken world. And it shows that there was an atonement that was necessary mm. for things to be made right. right. And so what we see in the Old Testament is this nuanced understanding of, of sin or brokenness or you know, humanity's vulnerability of living in the world in which that is ours, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that that we belong to, and and therefore, you know, the concept of sin and brokenness and atonement for sin and forgiveness—it's actually way more complex than in in the Bible, I think, than what we sometimes like to uh, acknowledge. So, when yeah, you're talking yeah. about sin in this conversation. I think it just dawned on me, you're not just simply talking about things that humans do with some intentionality or whatnot, but you're talking about evil at large, it sounds like. Exactly. So a lot of times we think of sin as being the intentional, willful sort of rebellion of the individual, mm. which we need to repent of, which is true. Mm. Uh, uh, but there's also sin in the world, which people are affected by, not as agents of sin, but mm -hmm. as victims of mm -hmm. sin and victims of brokenness, victims of systems of, of injustice. Mm -hmm. And those things are just as inconsistent with mm -hmm. the good purposes of God mm -hmm. as my, uh, you know, individual willful, you know, saying, I want to do my thing instead of what God tells me to do. Mm -hmm. So in yeah. that sense, the way you're using the word sin is that someone could unwillfully commit sin. And that is that what I mean by that is unwillfully bring about some evil in the world unknowingly, like they un unwittingly do something that brings about evil in the world. And that, that thing that in the results it is evil is, is sin. But you're saying that right there should be included with our definition of sin, not just what is willfully done, not willfully done. Yeah. I think willful and unwillful is part of the conversation in the Bible. Yeah. Of the yeah. way the Bible treats living in a broken world. Okay. Yeah, and and ultimately the the bigger picture of what is God trying to do, right? He's trying to set up a holy kingdom, kind of this upside down kingdom that looks different than the broken societies that we've set up as humans. Yeah, shalom is one of those yeah. uh, Old Testament words. It, it doesn't mean a superficial piece. It means yeah something that's far more uh, holistic, yeah. relational. Uh, it's vertical as well as horizontal, socially mm -hmm. and relationally. And and uh, it means uh, not just forgiveness of sins, but it means abundance. It means uh, having enough mm -hmm. and more than enough and margin and, and, and those sorts of things. So before we move on, then let's Let's, I want to define sin. I want to give it, give it a shot, but I don't like definitions. Let me do a definitional description of sin, okay? <laughs> because I don't like being held to a dictionary definition, okay? It sounds like, just wrap it up for people in this, that we're saying here sin is anything in the world that is dishonoring to God. Would that be a, at least a really, a, a, as good of a very concise definition as possible? Uh, sure. Anything in the cosmos that is dishonoring to God. Yeah, well, I think the world, I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay, right. okay. All right. So you have said, yes, there's an individual component, but you're also saying it's collective and cosmic in nature. Uh, those sound like really interesting theological, philosophical words, but um, unpack what you mean by that. Maybe start with cosmic. Okay. So in the book of Genesis, uh, we have the story of the fall. And does the fall begin with a human 
uh, actually the fall begins with another being called the serpent. And uh, the serpent is wily and crafty. And uh, the serpent tempts uh, Eve and Eve and Adam together fall under uh, uh, in rebellion to to God and uh, are cast out of the, the Garden of Eden. And they realize that uh, they're naked and they need to be clothed. And so what about this serpent? You know, was the serpent a sinner? <laughs> Did the serpent dishonor God? Uh, if we go by the definition of anything, sin is anything that dishonors God. Could it be said that the serpent uh, was acting in a way that was inconsistent with the holiness and goodness of God? Okay, so you're saying cosmic. You know, I, I read uh, your blog on this topic and you wrote sin is cosmic prior to human experience from non-human persons okay but when i hear cosmic i'm thinking systemic uh but you seem to be saying more because i wanted to say well by cosmic which just means systemic sin but you seem to be saying yes to that but also this other element yeah so cosmic i would say is uh first of all it is superhuman at least partially okay and by uh, by superhuman, I mean the serpent in the garden who represents non-human uh, forces or components or elements. Non-human so forces. Can, so that beings. can include legal systems, economic systems as well, since it, that's not. It, yeah, well. In, since systems themselves are not sure. people. So in, in the book of Ephesians, you have uh, the phrase rulers and authorities in, in Ephesians 6.12. You know, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and, and authorities and uh, dark forces. And and that phrase, rulers and authorities, uh, refers to the best of what I have read and understood, is that it, re it relates not only to uh, sort of dark forces or demonic forces, but the way those demonic forces interact with human systems hmm. on earth. Hmm. And you can, for example, think of uh, in Daniel, book of Daniel talks about the Prince of Persia, right? So the Prince of Persia had some sort of regional influence over, you know, that, that nation of, of Persia. And there was some, some force, some link, some influence generated by that evil being over the people of Persia. Mm. And obviously, we don't know everything there is to know. <laughs> you know, God sees things we don't see, but there is abundant material in the Bible that talks about uh, these kinds of forces interacting with human forces on earth mm. and uh, human institutions on earth. And uh, Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, gives a broad, a, a really broad academic uh, and accessible treatment to this subject. Yeah, his podcast, uh, The Unseen Realm, is also worth checking out for people who uh, want to delve into this. Because I think what, you're, what you get at, I don't know how you said it initially, but superhuman, it moves the word, or non-human forces, cosmic forces working through human social system. Something, you said something like that. Yes. Seems to be uh, the thrust of what he tries to unpack. And also another more 
less, I don't know, a heady book might be uh, Tim Gomes's The Drama of Ephesians. Yeah, he points this out quite uh, significantly. It's not only in Ephesians 6.12 where that phrase rulers and authorities uh, exists. It's also in uh, Ephesians 1, uh, 21 and 22 and, and Ephesians 3.10. So uh, there's in the book of Ephesians a, pre a pretty significant emphasis on this reality. Paul is writing with a reality, with an awareness of this reality of the dark cosmic or systemic forces uh, that are part of living on planet Earth. Yeah, it's not just Ephesians. You know, I, I, as you know, I wrote a book on Romans and Romans 5 to 8. Paul, people don't realize this because habits of reading, but in Romans 5 to 8, actually, Paul refers to sin uh, as a entity, as a personification. You're talking about sins plural. He talks about sin uh, as if it is a person who is a king who rules, uh, treating him like a pharaoh in contrast to the Lord. And uh, and so it becomes this kind of non-personal power that enslaves people. But mm -hmm. Paul is clearly not talking about individual sins in all those dynamics. You, have to, you could look at my work. You know, I've just borrowed from N.T. Wright, who, who really unpacked this. Um, but I've heard people say, who, who resist it and saying, isn't this just a cop out when you talk about sin as, you know, systemic like this or cosmic, is this kind of a, just a, a way of like pushing the blame off of someone else so that people don't feel so bad about themselves, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can see where that criticism could be leveled at someone who, wants to minimize their own responsibility for, you know, their own life. And, and I think that one could go too far in this understanding and you can minimize the role of the individual in, you know, in their own brokenness mm -hmm. and you can minimize the role of the individual in, with regard to their own sinfulness. But on the other hand, when the Bible uh, gives so much emphasis to these aspects, shouldn't we also try to grapple with these realities? That's, that's what I'm really advocating here, is that the Bible's overall conversation about sin is much more robust mm -hmm. than what we normally hear in you know the preaching about sin mm -hmm. uh, in, our, in our own local churches or in the way we present the gospel. And it sounds like, Werner, what you're saying, too, is that with that, when we kind of have a maybe an anemic understanding of sin, we have a tendency then to also pull ourselves out of the community of, of Jesus with, in regards to our salvation, in regards to how we see the church, um, the, how we see community. It's very easy when we have kind of this... Um, individual understanding of sin to think that being a part of the community of God is really not that important. It's not essential. That's a huge thing, Carrie. That's a huge thing. And it reminds me of uh, uh, Randy Richards and Richard James's book, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. I mean, what they point out so clearly and powerfully is that the Bible was written by people embedded in 
strongly relational collectivist type yeah. cultures right. where the group was more more important than the individual. Mm -hmm. And this is how they thought about life. And this is the people that they wrote to. And so the community has much more of a, uh, you know, much bigger emphasis than what we're used to yeah. uh, uh, speaking of in our own theology. I'm just going to read one a brief quote here from, from uh, the book, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes by uh, Richards and, uh, and James. Um, they write, faith means swearing allegiance to Jesus and his household. It isn't me and Jesus. By God's grace, I am made part of God's household. I have been brought into it through trusting in God's grace to me, even when I was an undeserving sinner. I don't invite Jesus into my heart. I join his flock. I become part of his we. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization. Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you wanna learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. When I was with some of, I have some Afghan friends here in the city. And I was with a group of women uh, a couple of weeks ago to park. And we went, these particular women cover their heads with scarves and when they're out, but we, it was hot. So some of them had lower, it was just us in this part of the park, but we went to take a picture and they all made sure to cover again. And I said, Oh, I'm not going to post the picture online. It's just for me. But all of them said to me, if I were to take a picture uncovered, it would be so shameful to my family. Now, their families are in Afghanistan or Pakistan. They're not even here. But they looked at me like my father would feel so much shame if I uncovered. Not even if he found out. It's just the, the act. And so I see that. I have seen that very clearly in so many other cultures that they there's, it's impossible for this group, this woman to separate herself from her family. You know, it just, she, that is not a concept that makes sense to her. And so I love that quote that you just read because it's becoming a part of his we. One I of the things that. that I frequently tell my students and my kids that uh, there's no such thing as a private sin because yeah. sin's always public. It always affects, it always affects people eventually socially because sin corrupts at the very least. It corrupts, has a corroding effect on me, and therefore all of me ends up influencing all the we around me. And so we tend to think of sin as just it's a private thing, my thing. And you guys are really hitting on the social component. So let me, you speak of sin as a collective social reality. Now, those are 
big words, kind of academic words. And I've heard you talk about collective sin, but, and some people may hear, oh, social sin. They may hear these words. I want to be clear about what you're talking about and not talking about. Because when I hear collect sin is a, is collective or social, I could interpret two ways. One is that sin is this thing that has systemic influence on us, or I could hear you saying that you're talking about sin as collective in terms of collective guilt or culpable. Those are two different ways to understand when you're talking about social sin. What are you talking about specifically here? Yeah. First of all, I'm not talking about individual culpability for the, you know, the group sin. I was, uh, I grew up in a German family. My father was a German soldier in World War II. Uh, I uh, struggled with the whole, uh, you know, Holocaust in Germany. You know, how did my people or my my parents' people, how, how did they allow such a horrible evil to happen in their country, despite the fact that there were so many Christians in the country? And, um, and I never felt personally guilty for what happened. You know, uh, among my ancestors. However, there's there's something intangible about my being a descendant of German people that makes me think more about it. You know, I'm not sure if it's it's I don't think it's guilt. I don't feel guilt for what happened, you know, two generations before me or a generation and a half prior to my own life. I certainly had no responsibility. I didn't choose to be part of that. But because I'm a, a blood descendant, it, it makes me think more about it. Yeah. And it makes me think also about the fact that there was something happening in the culture, in the society that was so strong and so powerful that it co-opted the church in in Germany, which was very strong and had strong institutions and and millions of Bible believing uh, uh, Christians, there was some force that that co-opted them into becoming, in effect, complicit with what uh, with the evil that happened there. And that kind of complexity and mystery is what I'm I'm trying to to grapple with it. Because we're still grappling with it today in our own country, in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, these social dynamics aren't behind us as a, you know, as a human race, right? Yeah. They're still, uh, uh, there are still uh, hor- horrendous evils that take place at a social level in different parts of the world. Well, it's not just theologians who are asking questions or missionaries or whatever else. Uh, psychologists, researchers. So like uh, Philip Zimbardo is a famous researcher who he's the one that did the Stanford prison uh, experiment. experiment SPE, yeah. Many many people have heard about. Uh, He wrote this book called The Lucifer Effect. That's like 550 pages. Uh, It's like 27 hours long on Audible. (laughs) Uh, uh, He probably more than anybody else has really dived into trying to understand these uh, sociological, psychological dynamic. I know you're familiar with his work. Mm -hmm. Can you catch people up into how his work sheds light on the things you're saying? Yeah. I think it was in the 1960s when he conducted this experiment at at uh, Stanford uh, University 
where they created an artif artificial prison environment. And there were prisoners, uh, there were people recruited to act as the prisoners, and there were people who were recruited to act as the guards. And they were given the appropriate uniforms. And uh, this, this experiment was conducted to see what the influence of the social environment would be on individuals. And it became so cruel that they had to suspend the, uh, the, uh, the experiment after, I don't know, 10 days or two weeks or something like that. What, what's interesting about that is, is that his wife yes. is the one who had to snap him out exactly, of this. Exactly, exactly. You know, some people question, well, the people he recruited were already inclined to this, and there may be some truth to that. But nevertheless, he's a researcher aware of these dynamics, and he knows what he's looking at, and he gets caught up in it. Exactly. He got caught in up in it as sort of the objective you know, mm -hmm. person looking at what's going and on. He was starting to be and one of these cruel type people. Exactly. He became cold to the cruelty. Mm. Yeah. He it be, it became uh, justified. Uh, the cruelty became justified because they were studying the effects. Yeah. Okay, and so he got caught up into it. And then his his girlfriend, who later became his wife, said, "You can't do this. You've got to stop this." Yeah. And all of a sudden, he snapped out of it and said, "Oh my goodness," yeah. he said. I've become complicit with the evil that was going on in this social experiment. Yeah. Uh, and it reminds me of the, uh, I just went blank, the experiment in Yale where they shot people. Um, you yeah. know, yeah, I yeah. went blank. It's a famous experiment where if they get the spelling wrong, they would get shocked. Yeah. And they kept shocking them to the point where they they thought they had died. And they kept doing it. Uh, I think, you know, yeah, thanks, Carrie, for looking it up. But that's another instance where these people who would otherwise do no harm, all of a sudden they get in this particular environment. And here they are shocking people to the point that people are begging not to be, right. you know, electrocuted. Um, uh, and then you, the, what, what you got? Is it the Milgram experiment? Yes, the Milgram yeah. experiment. Yeah. That's it. Okay, the Milgram experiment. Absolutely. And then you, and, and both of those sets of research were, were spurred on by the Holocaust, where they, where they were wondering how is it possible that these peace loving Germans, you know, the context and culture change a little bit, and all of a sudden they're all participating in these heinous things. Yeah. And, and there's all kinds of research out there about how context. Uh, provokes evil, provokes sin in ways that um, can't be explained the individual alone. Right. Yeah. Zimbardo says, and this is a quote, this sentence, he says, a large body of evidence in social psychology supports the concept that situational power triumphs over individual power in given contexts. Mm. So the power of the situation ends up being more determinative of the behavior of the individuals involved than the individual's own ethics or sense of responsibility or right and wrong. Yeah. Sometimes adults may say we're above that. So I'll go back to a time where we all realized we were not above it. And that is like middle school or high school where we get around a certain group of friends. We all of a sudden act, start acting a little differently. We act go with another group of friends, we start acting differently. And I don't think it's actually any different at the adult level. It's just we're more sophisticated with it. And maybe we're a little more loose with our tongue, more willing to criticize these people. We're in that group. We're in that setting. The implications of these of this is 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 pretty terrifying because it 
it suggests to us, and it's, it's proven by what happened in Germany, that even Bible-believing Christians put, in the, uh, put, put into a given context can end up doing really horrible things. Yeah. Real evil is, is it, it, it's at our disposal mm -hmm. as people who claim to be followers of Christ. I remember being at uh, the concentration camp in in uh, Germany uh, called Bergen-Belsen, which is where Anne Frank uh, uh, died. And um, I remember uh, taking a picture of myself. It was a selfie in front of a of an aerial view or an aerial map of of Bergen-Belsen. And the reason I did that was to say. I am a member of the human race and I am just as capable of this horrendous evil. And there's a sense of shame that came over me just for being a part of the human race, knowing that it was humans who did these things. It was humans and their systems and their institutions and their, if you will, politics, uh, their ideology. It was humans who did this. And I, I would say there's also some cosmic dark forces that were involved as well. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're not above doing horrible stuff as Christians. Well, let's look at, let's think through some of the theological and practical like, implications of some of this. When I think, when, think theologically, what are some implications for us uh, and, and biblically uh, to if we have a more robust, complex view of, of sin, you know, when we, when we interpret the Bible, when we do theology, what things in the scripture would jump out to us that we might otherwise not pay attention to? I'm thinking one, for example, that you mentioned is this whole idea of this, these cosmic powers. Just that right there is a very little talked about, underdeveloped aspect of theology. That would be one thing. It would be, and it, it would create a, a greater sense of sobriety, <laughs> I think, in the mm. Christian community about our, potential, our own potential for evil. Mm. And it, when I say sobriety, I mean, I mean humility. Like, like, I can do horrible things. My community can do horrible things. Mm. Uh, my nation can do horrible things. Mm. Uh, uh, the idea that there is real evil out there and it can touch my life and it can affect the way I see things yeah. uh, and, and it, it can affect my behavior. You know, I think, I think of um, the story of Joseph and his, his brothers uh, in Genesis, uh, book of Genesis, obviously as, as Westerners. And, and I, I've, I'm I'm thinking about this because it it was brought out in that book by uh, Richards and James, uh, misreading scripture with individual size. As Westerners, we look at the story of Joseph and we say, "Ah, it's a rags to riches story." You know, he was you know sold into slavery by his brothers, and and uh, and then he uh, you know he rose to become. Uh, prime minister of Egypt, even though, you know, he was thrown into jail and, you know, he resisted uh, moral sin and way to go, Joseph. Right. Yeah. And and 
uh, but the Bible gives an incredibly complex family story there. Mm, mm, like a lot of dysfunction. A lot of dysfunction. <laughs> absolutely. How's that for the understatement of the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Joseph is the favorite son. Uh, he's got all. He's got these older brothers. And, you know, why is it that Jacob, first of all, favors him like the way he does? I mean, mm. does Jacob bear any responsibility for this? Mm. You know, why would Joseph, you know, make a big deal about the dream that he's received mm. and that his 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 uh, his own brothers are going to end up serving him? Mm. Like, wouldn't that alienate you from your brothers, you know, with that kind of, uh, you know, trumping up your own mm -hmm. status mm -hmm. and making yourself look better when you're the one in the home and everybody else is out there working in the yeah. fields, right? And and then he gets sold into slavery. And yes, he does get promoted to being the prime minister of Egypt. But the whole purpose of this story is not about Joseph, you know, going from rags to riches. It's about the overall reconciliation of this family. And then That's, God's reconciling the human family through this family. Exactly. It's a collective identity salvation. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a relational big big family mm. reconciliation that takes place. Mm. And so the sin that happens in that family, it's a complex sin. Jacob has sinned. Joseph has sinned. Mm. The brothers have sinned, right? Yeah. And it's just it's a nuanced, complex story that actually reflects the way sin works in our world. Yeah, Ooh, that's a good word. Yeah. So we have to. It helps us, it forces us to analyze a lot of texts more carefully, more deeply. And I love how you turned that on back to us. That if we have to do that with these texts, we have to do that with sin in our own lives, in our own cultures. Uh, if we have a simple explanation of sin in our own life or in the Bible, chances are we, we're, we're on the wrong path. We may be right, but we're on the short path. Not the, Well, there's a lot more to it. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not saying that our view of sin or the way we think about sin is wrong, but there's just so much more to learn about it mm -hmm. to understand how it works in our families. I mean, you know, I, I go to a therapist I, yeah. and I talk about complex stuff in my family, my, you know, my own family, uh, my historical family, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, why was there mental illness in my family? Why was there so much shame in my family? Mm -hmm. How was this passed down? Uh, how did I miss things? How was I blind to things? You know, where is, the, how is this that this brokenness gets, gets passed on, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think that that complexity, which deals with, in my own life, you know, the nation of Germany, uh, the, the, the reality of my father, the reality of my grandfather doing stuff that was complicit with the Nazi regime. There's all kinds of weird stuff, and it gets passed on uh, in ways that are invisible to us. And it affects it. I believe it's affected my own behavior in in some ways and i'm i'm trying to sort it out um so i i just think that for us to recognize just the way the the bible recognizes that that sin is a many splendid <laughs> many splendored thing no it's a multifaceted horror and if along with sin it's not just 
when we think about sin, we frequently think, who's the blame? You know, where's, where's the problem? But let's go positively. That mean, that leads to a more robust view of salvation. Mm-hmm. So that's a theological implication of everything you're saying. And I think in our communication of this, this is maybe another going into another implication, but as we're talking with missionaries that are being sent out from America to other places, it's impacting the way that we're talking about Jesus and talking about scripture with, with people. You know, I remember early on in our time in China, I mean, it was so much, I would talk about Jesus so much in the kind of one-on-one relationship and constantly our Chinese friends would ask questions, well, but what about, what are my parents going to think? And I've got this sister and this is what she thinks. And they were constantly wrestling with, it was never all about their individual salvation, just wasn't. And what am I being saved into? I mean, please don't tell me I'm getting saved and now I'm by myself. You know, they needed to know I'm being saved into a community of believers. And so I think that's another implication for us to think through is how is this our, again, anemic understanding of sin impacting how we're going out and being missionaries in other cultures? Right, yeah, because for some Chinese to be a Christian felt like a sin in the respect that you're, for, from their perspective, it was forsaking family. How could yeah. how could a good God want me to, you know, disrespect my family? Yeah. But with, without a more robust understanding of, of sin, evil, and salvation, you just don't have really much to address, you know, yeah. much ways to say it. Okay, so when you think about the mission of the church, whether it be overseas or, or domestically or whatnot, what are some of the ways that all this thinking impacts the church's ministry? Sure. I, I'll, I'll start by just uh, referencing uh, the project I'm working on. We call it the Ephesians 2 Gospel Project, uh, Ephesians2.org. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, the fact that yeah, it's Ephesians two with a number, right? Ephesians correct. The number two. Okay. Ephesians the number two dot org. Take you, it'll take you to a mission one page. Um, and uh, the fact that here in Ephesians two, we see there is a horizontal reconciliation that takes place between Jew and Gentile. It talks about breaking down the wall of hostility. Uh, I think in verse 14. In verse 16, it actually says, killing the hostility. Uh, That hostility is horizontal. It's not vertical with God. It's horizontal between Jews and Gentiles. So uh, just the fact that uh, sin can be understood as being more than individual and vertical, that sin can, can be understood as between groups, yeah. uh, that, that sin can uh, also be addressed uh, as a horizontal um, dynamic. Um, the fact that there is a reconciliation that happens both vertically and horizontally uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, suggests that sin happens not only individually towards God, but we also know sin is against people, and it's it's horizontal, and it's between groups. Uh, it's between cultures sometimes. It's uh, between Shiite and Sunni. It's between Jew and Gentile. It's between... Uh, the uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know, to refer to uh, to a uh, uh, 
uh, a blood vengeance uh, story that happened in here in the United States. So uh, the fact that sin can operate at these different levels uh, is it's, it's just important for us to be realistic about it. I think, too, um, it's easy to walk away from this conversation almost feeling like, well, why even try? <laughs> this just It can feel a little bit defeatist when you feel like there's so much working against us. But I will say, I think in for me especially, I we have access to a Holy Spirit that has victory over all of these things. Yeah. yeah. And we have access to prayer to a God who listens to what we're crying out for, that we don't have to live in this defeat to it. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about Ephesians, right? It's There are all these dark systems, but ultimately they don't get the victory. <laughs> that's right. You know? That's right. And and on the one hand, you can say, yeah, it's, sin is more complex than we're normally talking about it or normally preaching about it. But on the other hand, like, how much hope do we have? Absolutely that the Bible actually addresses the complexity of it. It doesn't reduce it to a simple formula. And that gives me great confidence that our faith, not only our faith, but our, our Savior, you know, the Lord Jesus and what he has done and how the Word of God gives witness to this complex, beautiful, profound reality. I mean, that, that, for me, uh, Carrie, is, is, is a great source of hope and yeah, confidence. Absolutely. You know, I, I, when I hear this, I also think another implication is that it can maybe spur ideas about how to challenge various unjust social systems, social evils, evils in society, whether it be we're talking about abortion, poverty, uh, injustice in the prison system, economic laws, uh, racism, whatever it may be. It seems like if we see sin in more of these systemic terms, we're not merely thinking we have to go person by person by person to convince them of these things. We can actually address uh, habits and, 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 and of, a, of a culture and laws and policies and you know institutions that can have a more systemic positive impact at restraining evil and giving room for good fruit. Mm-hmm. Does that sound about right? What? Yeah, I, I, I think that's, I think that's really valid. Um, I think the whole gospel of the kingdom uh, gives witness to this idea that there is a, a politics, if you will, where Jesus is king, where there is justice. There, yes, there is forgiveness of sins, absolutely, but there's also. Uh, abundance and justice and a a moving toward the elimination of 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 hunger you know you know physical hunger and where life is more whole yeah, this discussion reminds me that Christians should not only hate eternal suffering eternal evil but evil and suffering of any sort uh, whereas I think that a lot of ministry conversation tends to prioritize, should we care about that sort of suffering or that sort of suffering? And I'm like, why shouldn't we care about all of it? Yeah. And we can't, every individual can't deal with all of it, but the church can address a whole lot of it. Um, in the missions context, realizing that people, missionaries are viewed and outsiders are viewed a certain way because of collective identity. People are going to associate us with certain sins. That's going to affect our ministry. 
so that they're going to be more or less closed to the message that's being brought in. Not to mention the biases that we have when we share. Like, I know that early on when I try to explain sin, and I've heard others do this, there'd be all this list of sins, but that list usually was very culture-laden you know, from my own culture, my own background. And for them, it was like, ah, that's not, that doesn't really connect with me. I don't understand that. Right. Whereas the things that they may see as a big deal, I would never think of. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that as long as we're doing list for list, we're missing the point anyways. Yeah, a lot of times those lists are based upon selective choices from the Bible. You know, we're, we're focusing on one, two, three, yeah. or exactly, yeah. uh, from one's own culture that you can find in the Bible when you're also at the same time avoiding other things in the Bible mm-hmm. that might might uh, put you under, put one under uh, a, a little more scrutiny or right. condemnation right. relative to, to the righteousness of God. And if sin is the corrupting, the breaking down, uh, brokenness of of systems and society and individuals and families and every, at every level, then we can also rethink of discipleship in terms of flourishing uh, and think of it, how discipleship is done in the community, as a community, through a community, not merely as me and my individual Bible time or individual prayer time. So rethinking discipleship strategies that involve community. Yeah, I like that. That's We interviewed... Jim Mullins in season one, and I think his book, Symphony of Mission, does a really good job of getting church bodies as a collective, not even within one church, but in a city, the church's collective going and doing good in their city. And I just think, gosh, if we could multiply that in every city here, then we can multiply it when we send people to other places and we, it, it can seem overwhelming when you have to think as an individual. It does not feel as overwhelming when you think about it as churches holding hands and doing this together. Yeah, well, time is has caught up with us. Um, for those who want to go, how do I tie us together? I'm going to give my shot at trying to wrap this together. And you tell me what you think since you spurred this conversation. You spoke of sin as being individual, collective, and cosmic. As we were talking, I have another alliteration here for you. I don't know, alliteration or whatever you call this. <laughs> uh, systemic, superhuman, and social. Um, not simply individual. Um, does that sound like a fair summary of the points that? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Sure. Okay. All right. I, I like trying to help us kind of have a takeaway. Go, okay, I need to chew on the, these things. Systemic, superhuman, and social, not just individual. Yeah, and the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ addresses all of those things. And we see that addressed theologically, I think, especially in the books of the letters of Ephesians and Colossians. Well, we don't do this podcast just for individuals. We do it for entire communities, entire churches. So if you want to get the word out so that other people can join this conversation, please go to uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, whatever it is that you you listen to this podcast. Go give us five stars, leave a review, tell your friends about it so that we can um, have more of a systemic effect as a church <laughs> thinking through these issues. Um, we would appreciate that. Um, you guys have anything else before we go? One book I want to recommend. We've already recommended a few, but there is a terrific book called Missing the Mark 
Sin and Its Consequences in Biblical Theology by Mark Biddle. Uh, if you can get a hold of that book, that really addresses in a comprehensive way this whole theology of sin, and uh, I'd, I'd recommend that. Right. Right. Carrie, anything? No, I would say I don't even have a specific book, or I would say, though, find people to read, to listen to movies, to watch of people who have been in systemic broken systems. I think of right now we're watching Ukrainian Christians singing hymns in bomb shelters. Go and, and read and be a part of how they are living faithful lives to Jesus amidst a very obviously broken world and existence. All right. And don't forget to lift all this up in prayer. Thank you guys for joining us for this uh, latest episode of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. Keep the conversation going. Thank you.